know, the idea of Israeli self-defense involves sort of like picking some arbitrary starting point when Palestinians fought back and then being like, yeah, that's the first blood in this conflict. That's what... The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, and this is the Electronic Intifada podcast. Uh, Joining us to talk about media suppression and coverage in the mainstream corporate media is Greg Shupak. He's a contributor to the Electronic Intifada and just wrote a piece in FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, called Israel-Palestine Coverage Presents False Equivalency Between Occupied and Occupier. Greg, it's so good to have you with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks so much for uh, for having me. I've, as I said to you in, uh, when you emailed me, I was going to get in touch to beg to come on. So I appreciate <laughs> that you saved me the humiliation. You're totally welcome anytime. <laughs> um, so Greg, uh, give us a sense of, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, it, we've been through this so many times, so many decades. So 73 years of spin on Israel's settler colonial program in Palestine. Um, lay out kind of the foundation of, of what you wrote the other day and what, uh, what you're seeing in terms of coverage in mainstream corporate media versus reality on the ground. Sure. Well, um, you know, there's, there's a variety of different uh, approaches that we see in the coverage. Um, you do see people that are engaging in out-and-out bloodlust, um, you know, like Brett Stevens in the New York Times and people uh, writing at Wall Street Journal who are just, um, you know, full-on um, calling for um, whatever they see as total uh, Israeli uh, victory, and we can kind of imagine what that looks like. Um the, those those certainly exist and are not rare. Um, the I think more common approach this time around in mainstream news media in the U.S. and and from what I can tell, Britain and also Canada is um, is the <coughs> the um, both sides approach or the and the Israel has a right to defend itself approach. Right, and the two can kind of blend together. So. Um, you know, as I've, uh, I'll take those in reverse order, but as I've mentioned before, there's, or as I wrote, I should say for, uh, in my, in my book and in a extract for on electronic intifada, the, um, you know, the idea of Israeli self-defense involves sort of like picking some arbitrary starting point when Palestinians fought back and then being like, yeah, that's the first blood in this conflict. That's what, you know. Well, so surprised they resisted being thrown off their homes and their land. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird how, you know, only Palestinians are the only people in history who kind of object to being uh, murdered and dispossessed and, uh, you know, uh, suffering gruesome, debilitating injuries and humiliation at every corner. Um, So yeah, they do this weird thing where they, um, where they eventually get fed up with that. And then when they get fed up with that, that's when the, the violence quote unquote starts. Um, and, you know, we have, of course, that uh, being arbitrary and totally dubious, um, but it also relies on like erasing all these um, 
permanent uh, forms of Israeli violence. So in the case of fighting coming from or resistance coming from Gaza, we can just look at a simple fact like the siege, right? The siege is an act of warfare. It's enforced militarily by the Israeli Navy, Air Force, and uh, you know by the snipers at the along the fence. So um, you know this is an act of war when there's a siege in place. You you when you're besieging a population, you cannot claim when that population uh, you know fights back at some point to be um, you know the victim, right? To be uh, merely responding to what they do, they're res responding to the siege among other factors, and and that of course is without even getting into the bigger picture, longer term history, which the two of you know, and, and I assume many of your readers do, and we can talk about that if you want. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the fact that I'm, what I'm driving at there is just that we have this completely untenable um, Israeli right to defense, so-called, uh, that gets invoked over and over again, which um, is based on picking this entirely selective um, set of fact uh, set of facts and excluding others um the the corollary of course is that there's never any um consideration of the palestinian right to defense or uh right to resist or right to liberate themselves so i recently wrote in jacobin about this where i looked at the every the, the new york times washington post usa today la times and wall street journal for this entire century um, there's hundred, there's uh, I think 400 some references to um, the uh, alleged Israeli right to defend itself, and zero, zero. Well, actually, no, not zero. Two, two references, basically the same article published twice, um, to a Palestinian that mentioned a Palestinian right to defend it themselves, and that was uh, a quote from a guy who was basically kicked out of the U.S. military because he said Palestinians have a right to defend themselves, mm. themselves and other similar things. So that is a, that, that concept is non-existent in mainstream media and thus is not going to penetrate a lot of the popular consciousness. Um, I mentioned also the both sides narrative. So this uh, similarly rests on obscuring uh, all kinds of power asymmetries uh, that exist. So um, it's in the, the title of my uh, FAIR article, Gets to It, uh, the idea that uh, both sides are at fault or both sides are suffering to comparable degrees or, um, or uh, that, you know, both sides have made, uh, you know, comparable uh, mistakes or whatever these talking points are. You see them over and over again. Um, this all involved, this, this only could make sense if it were, I don't know, say a civil war between two equal powers or two um, states maybe with roughly comparable uh, degrees of military strength and economic and political power, uh, not uh, colonizer and colonized or occupier and occupied. Um, the fact is that um, when, when you're talking in terms of both sides, you know, suffering, for example, well, you're obviously, drawing this completely false uh, equivalency between the damage being done right now um, and in the longer history. But it's also, a, there's also a qualitative difference where, you know, uh, colonial and imperial violence is treated as no different from 
uh, anti-colonial counter-violence. Um, as though the, uh, you know, the, the uh, effort of, uh, of a people to liberate themselves were uh, the kind of moral and legal equivalent of uh, the effort to snuff out those liberation movements. So, um, you know, this, this is, a real, is really predominant. We can talk at examples, but this both sides-ism is probably the most, or at least co-most with the uh, Israeli right to defense as far as frames for the coverage. Um, and the other main thing I would point out about the coverage uh, is, is that the, um, uh, there's just so much that's left out. And, you know, that can be something like uh, the intensified uh, closures. So I talk about this a little bit in the article. And so, you know, the, um, the closure of uh, uh, Karim Shalom, the, the closure of that uh, crossing intensifies the blockade, right? And this is part of the uh, war that Israel's currently carrying out. So um, this, you know, keeps out things like um, aid, for example, like it even further reduces humanitarian aid, which the siege already does. Um, it uh, jeopardizes the um, food supply. It, it je or, well, actually, more accurately, it jeopardizes the electricity supply, which has residual effects across the economy. Um, so that, you know, or the economy and the social safety net. So that undermines things like the hospitals. Um, and uh, what I was going to say about food was that the intensified closures uh, of sea access, the, the tightening of already draconian restrictions for Gaza fishers uh, that have been implemented. This, like the Karim Shalom closing, uh, has been more or less completely absent from the coverage. Uh, there's uh, no indication of the fact in this coverage that 68.5% um, of Palestinians by, by the World Food Program's calculation um, who live in Gaza are uh, food insecure. And the, I think one article that mentioned in major US media that I looked at, the one that mentioned uh, the increased restrictions on fishers from Gaza um, didn't mention that this will further harm the food supply. Um, so you have a total absence of the fact that the population living there uh, is already food insecure, combined with a total um, erasure of the fact that Israel is taking actions that are, uh, you know, virtually certain to worsen that food insecurity because mm -hmm. that fish is now removed from the equation. Um, there's virtually no references to the fact that Gaza is basically a giant uh, refugee camp and that uh, is significant for because that kind of you know shapes people's whole understanding of what's happening right um, if people just you know come come to have the information that tells them oh actually this is Israel uh, bombing a territory full of people that are refugees and the reason they're refugees is because Israel made them refugees and refuses to let them to go home and thus not be refugees anymore then that kind of whole you know, series of categories of information really alters the way that the whole dynamic across Palestine uh, looks to, to people who have that information. Um, but uh, when, when there's no um, 
effort to to let audiences understand that these are refugees primarily in Gaza, then that uh, is the kind of thing that enables it to be framed as a, a matter of uh, both sides or self-defense for that matter. How, you know, Israel can't be defending itself against people that it made into refugees and forces to continue being refugees. Um, and it's not, I, I wanna talk a little bit about like the top-down, um, you know, structure for these corporate media, um, you know, kind of like uh, dic dictates. Um, so a few days ago, uh, an internal memo was leaked. Um, there's a CNN, like, you know, some sort of like high, high up in the CNN um, officialdom had uh, instructed the news, you know, bureau and, and all of the writers and whatever to, um, to always put Hamas run um, before talking about the Ministry of Health in Gaza, for example, or um, you know any sort of governmental ministry, the you know police force, the traffic, you know cops, the the uh, government clinics, the you know banks, um, that they all had to be prefaced with Hamas run. Um, and you know, someone on Twitter yesterday was pointing out, like, why don't we talk about um, as like Likud run, uh, you know, social security or like the Likud run, you know, hospitals? Israel is always um, framed as this like neutral, um, benign, you know, sort of like uh, the the normal sort of society, whereas the you know of course you know demonization of palestinians and and arabs and muslims and people all over the middle east of course uh decades have been gone have gone into this but but designating you know really kind of um explicitly and specifically designating anything run um by you know by the the gaza government as hamas run um what does that do to the reader and and how how can you explain this you know this dictate from the higher ups at CNN to do that? Yeah, that's a really uh, that's a really um, <laughs> just telling and, and stunning um, uh, revelation. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's something that is consequential because of the you know intense propaganda against. Uh, Hamas really since they've existed, um, certainly since the second intifada and uh, and the, their uh, election um, in in uh, 2006. So yeah, I mean that's uh, I think I think what's going on there is it's an effort to legitimize Israeli violence against uh, civilian targets against um, the institutions of Palestinian uh, social reproduction. Um, because yeah, Israel bombed a hospital sounds bad, but Israel, you know, bombed a Hamas run hospital makes it sound as though this is a, uh, ha has some sort of like military element to it. Um, it must be, uh, you know, involved in, in uh, nefarious, uh, violent um, activities because it's attached to Hamas, which is understood already from a long-term, um, you know, uh, concerted propaganda effort to be that and only that. Um, so, you know, I think it, it's uh, it's really about, you know, a de uh, legitimizing Israeli violence 
and also uh, delegitimizing um, Palestinians' uh, right to to exist, right, and to um, take care of each other, and to uh, you know provide support for their ill and injured and old and young, and um, you know the, these kinds of really basic functions that any uh, non-colonized uh, society is able to, to provide for itself. Um, so yeah, I think that that that's very much what's going on here. This it's it's a uh, something that I would draw a parallel to is the constant references to Hamas as uh, Iran-backed or Iran-allied. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I wrote re not too long ago about. Uh, uh, the use of the word proxy in news media. And, you know, I, I suggest that uh, when, when some political organization is described as a proxy, that's meant to delegitimize them, right? Like it's suggesting they're kind of doing the bidding of some outside power. Um, and it also delegitimizes the outside power as like meddling uh, in someone else's affairs. And so, the same kind of processes at work when Hamas is constantly, as it has been throughout the recent coverage, described as um, either an Iranian proxy or at least um, Iran-backed or uh, an Iranian ally. Uh, that works because, of course, Iran has been demonized since uh, the 1979 revolution. And uh, it's a way of, of just uh, turning Palestinian resistance into an arm of, uh, you know, Iranian, um, you know, uh, malevolence, right? right? Because there's already this notion that's been planted and nourished um, for for decades in people's minds that Iran is, you know, up to up to no good, whatever that means. Like, typically, it's called supporting terrorism. Um, or having some sort of, uh, you know, dangerous nuclear program or um, any number of other things along those lines. So, yeah, linking um, Hamas, which really is in the pub public consciousness often presented as uh, being kind of shorthand for all of Palestinians, um, that really makes Israeli violence look, uh, it, it can make it, I should say, seem more legitimate um, more justified. Yeah. Now they're fighting Iran, a you know, an actual state, right? Uh, with, which is a regional power of sorts, not to the you know, they're not a nuclear armed power like the Israel, and they've been decimated by sanctions and all that. But it's a little bit more of a uh, um, an, an, an international conflict between two comparable parties just in terms of the, the amount of power that they theoretically have, um, as opposed to between colonizer and colonized. So it really just is a way of, uh, of uh, you know, muddying what's going on, right? Which is what's happening so with so much of this coverage. The goal isn't necessarily always to, um, uh, you know, out and out convince people to see Israel as, you know, pure and, uh, morally righteous and Palestinians as the opposite. Certainly that that is something we see at times in the coverage, but it can be just as effective for the propagandists to just confuse people, right? And to just make people throw up their hands and say, oh, I don't know, these are, uh, it seems these 
people have been involved in a religious or cultural clash for thousands of years or you know whatever um that's kind. the main strategy in britain that's i right. think yeah okay i've seen it a little bit in some of the more right-wing uh british uh coverage but i, have, I haven't followed it as closely it cer certainly comes comes up here but i recall it too in some guardian coverage of the of the knives intifada a few years ago um there was a couple that really that i addressed in my book that really went for this is a religious conflict um so yeah you know that that kind of thing just makes it seem totally timeless right outside of history intractable nothing that can be solved with no clear uh good and bad with no party more in the right or wrong than the other um it, it's uh you know whether it's that or whether just talking about clashes and exchanges of fire these things that um sort of flatten out the differences and wash over all the details right. enable people to really uh or enable make it more likely that people will just not be able to make sense of what's happening which can be just as damaging because it's demobilizing right. right can be just as damaging as being an you know out and out like hardcore zionist is if you just if people don't know who's in the right or who's in the wrong then they're not going to be inclined to want to do anything about it, right? Um, so yeah, I think that, that that's a really important element of it uh, too, just uh, total obfuscation of what's, of what's happening and what has happened prior to the last uh, 10 days or so. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes across to academia too, that whole thing sure. of, oh, it's complicated. Did you both see this? some moron with a PhD on Twitter a few days ago. Oh, the Middle East uh, expert, the scholar with a PhD. Yeah, he was like, I've written the book about it. on the Middle East <laughs> right. and I'm choosing not to tweet this week. Maybe no. you should too. And right. <laughs> it's just right. like, no. Right. I'm, I'm happy to report that he got widely mocked though. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, that's also part of the thing is like, um, you know, people people are led to believe that if they don't, if they're not a scholar of the Middle East, if they don't understand, you know, um, the history of the last, you know, 4,000 years in the Middle East, um, if they don't read every scholarly academic book on the history of the Palestinians, then they're not, um, they're not supposed to have an opinion. Uh, you know, and, and that's, a, that's a way that Zionists have for forever and ever. Um, been able to, um, you know, to kind of push down any sort of conversation or, you know, kind of um, distract from, from talking about the real issue um, is to say, oh, it's, it's way too complicated, you know, it's, you're, or, or, you know, if they're Israeli or Zionist, um, they'd say, well, you don't, you've never lived there, you don't know what it's like. Um, you know, so you can't have an opinion on Palestinian human rights. Yeah, and the new one is identity politics That's based, right. where they say, right. um, yeah. uh, you know, this offends me, or, <laughs> you know, you're right. trampling on my agency, or <laughs> like, right. yeah. 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 yeah, all this kind of nonsense. Yeah, listen, Z listen to Israeli voices. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. Listen to yeah. colonizers. Right, exactly. Um, oh. Well, yeah, I was just going to add, and that overlaps with the whole 
effort to, uh, which seems to have had a bit of a resurgence um, to kind of make, uh, you know, Israel the indigenous peoples of Palestine. Right, right. That if you can try to sell that point, it's a little easier to do the sort of uh, academic identity yeah. politics about Israeli voices or, you know, yeah, somebody's uh, uh, being uh, offended as a Zionist or something as though that were... Right. As though Zionism thing. was an identity and not a political yeah, exactly. ideology. And yeah, not a yeah political movement. Right. That's a colonial yeah. movement. So, I, you know, I'm all for their feelings being hurt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I wanted to to bring in kind of how uh, you know both the U.S. and the U.K. governments are being portrayed as well by by the corporate media you know the us of course being israel's main financier and an aider and a better of israel's crimes um your your colleague and and our friend uh, adam johnson of citations needed and also of, of fair um tweeted yesterday I, I love i love it he says i'm absolutely losing my mind biden blocks a un ceasefire resolution four times and lets israel's leveling of gaza run its course for 11 days without any public condemnation or sanction of any kind and it's spun as an unprecedented tough line bizarro world right so like biden uh, considering a, a $735 million weapons package for Boeing weapons made in Chicago to go and kill Palestinians in Gaza, um, his, his blocking four times now of UN uh, Security Council uh, ceasefire resolutions, um, somehow Biden, Biden's um, uh, you know, MO is being spun as, you know, really, really giving Netanyahu a, a hard time right now. And really, you know, kind of this, like this, like tough, tough guy sort of thing where it's completely <laughs> just, there's no evidence for this. Um, how, how is that, you know, also I think about how Obama, you know, resupplied Israel in 2014 while it was bombing the hell out of Gaza. Um, and again, it was spun as like, you know, oh, Obama's really tough on Israel and Netanyahu and Obama have all these tensions between them. What is what is that um, meant to portray? What is what is the what what's the what's the what's the plan there? Yeah, I think uh, that's a really important aspect uh to, to think about. Um, another weird dimension of it too is saying, I've seen a few times and Jennifer Rubin in the post did this a few times and she wasn't the only one, but yeah, or at least a couple of times where it's like, um, oh, well, you know, geez, Biden, uh, he's really, boy, it's too bad he got sucked into this situation, right. <laughs> derailing all of his uh, domestic agenda or, you know, the or trying to rework the uh, deal with Iran. Um, you know, as though he has no agency in the situation, no capacity to say, oh, I know, I'll just basically tell Israel not to do it and they won't. And it would have never happened in the first place if he had done that, um, if he threatened to cut off even- If he just cut the aid. I mean, it would totally. be one stroke of a pen. Of course, exactly. Yeah. Even even for, he probably could get them to do what he wanted if he threatened to cut off a small portion of the aid. Um, let alone that, of course, he can and should uh, get rid of it entirely. So, yeah, I mean, I think that this is uh, really crucial, uh, not only to um, 
you know, Israel, Palestine, but also um, U.S. imperialism generally to constantly position the U.S. as either, you know, an innocent observer or, you know, working for good, right? Like saying, go Biden, you know, he's really worried about, um, you know, Rashida Tlaib's family or something. So he wants to, uh, you know, bring this uh, under control as quickly as possible um, as though the U.S. like, as though the U.S. is opposed to war, right? As opposed to, <laughs> as though the U.S. ruling class has any objection uh, now or at any point in the past to, um, you know, Israel using lethal violence to uh, pursue its aims, which generally are also U.S. aims. Um, so this, uh, this process that you described is a matter of obscuring the American responsibility for what's happening so that uh, the American, which is crucial to keeping the whole operation going, right? The American public, uh, if it can, if, if Israel is kind of losing and they perhaps are to some extent, the hearts and minds of the American population or at least segments of it, uh, then uh, it's important that they just, you know, direct that anger at Israel in the abstract and not kind of connect the dots to, oh wait, there's something that can very easily uh, be done yeah. living inside the United States in particular, but also Britain or Canada. Um, so, you know, that's that's really, as, as we know, like uh, where people have leverage is it, people who at least, it, where we have leverage is where we live, right? Whether that's this or any number of other issues. And so, um, if that's if that's gone and we don't recognize that our governments are playing an absolutely central, a, a decisive role in uh, this uh, in a, a bloody colonial enterprise, then uh, that really undermines eff efforts to uh, stop it, um, and it, it further legitimizes future is excuse me U.S. Um, ventures right by by kind of burnishing the image of, oh, the U.S. really is working hard to try to bring at least a, a ceasefire, if not peace, to, um, to Palestine. Um, it, for Palestine Israel, it can kind of try to re-burnish um, re, re this idea that uh, the U.S. is like a neutral, uh, uh, you know, peace uh, like the, arbiter right? of that'll, peace and democracy. Yes, yeah, that would set us up for like the next uh, yeah. nightmare of pretending that that's gonna do anything to resolve uh, the outstanding uh, injustices. So, yeah, I, I think it's uh, that kind of like yeah, laundering uh, the U.S. role is at least as important yeah. as. Um, putting a gloss on what Israel has done when it comes to audiences inside the United States and also the other uh, powers allied with, with Israel, like the place where I live. So um, yeah, I, I think that that's something that hasn't gotten enough attention and is really important. So I'm glad you brought it up. Just further to what I was saying earlier about uh, the British media. I mean, it, it's very similar dynamics to what you're describing. Um, there is absolutely there's the people 
um, people on the right wing who are more gung ho and a bit more, um, I don't know, exterminate all the brutes kind of uh, just pure unvarnished racism. Um, but then, you know, and, and a lot of them are Zionists as well, whether, you know, organized Zionists um, or just generally part of the ideological construction of of empire really um there are those but by and large it is mostly sort of the oh it's complicated right uh, uh, that sort of approach and i think that is part of the colonial heritage as well because the the whole self-narrative of the british empire in palestine up until now when it's reflected on is oh well you know this is this intractable conflict and we try to do good like the, the empire's narrative always is really you know we try to do good but the you know the natives insisted on killing each other sort of thing mm. all this kind of we had no so choice it, it, right yeah <laughs> right. so it just it sort of extends from that but i think i mean to the extent that i've paid much attention to the mainstream media during this particular onslaught uh, which isn't very much to be honest with you um, because it's useless <laughs> um, I only do it as an object of study. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. <laughs> like the, the the same reason that uh, I spend a lot of my time looking at uh, what the Israel lobby is saying. Um, uh, the uh, British mainstream media. What I've noticed, well, my impression anyway, this time around, is they're just reporting on it less. Mm. Like it's like whereas before there would be a bit more. I I think they kind of know they can't get away with the disinformation so much whether that's conscious or not I, I'm not I don't think not so sure but there just seems to be less reporting on it in general than say the 2014 war that's my impression anyway like I, I haven't studied that in any substantive way um, but they just sort of seem to be not talking about it to a certain extent um, be, because I think they just know there's more general awareness in the British population about Palestine compared to 2014 mm. um, and uh, and criticism and also another factor is um, the Israeli ambassador in London who is just an outright settler you know yes fanatic <laughs> Zippy Hotavelli. Um so I think they know she's a bit of a liability um, yes do you think that uh uh, on the other hand, that it, part of that, if there's a, been a relative dip compared to 2014 in the volume of the coverage, um, do you think that there's uh, anything that that's connected to like, hey, we, we already kind of made our point by uh, doing Corbin in, right? That yeah, we've right. already been clear what happens if you get out of line on Palestine. Um, so it kind of doesn't matter what the population knows or thinks because within the power structure, uh, it's, it, he's been made an example of he and obviously his entire uh, movement. You, you know what? Um, I think that's probably a more credible explanation than what I was saying a minute ago, which is uh, probably the more optimistic way to look at it. <laughs> but but <laughs> oh. I think both I, I think both things play play a role. But yeah, I mean absolutely. I mean that that's true. That's that's absolutely true. Yeah. They did Corbyn in and yeah, I mean I think there's a, there's a certain amount of fear there from mainstream uh, journalists. 
Um, but it's also just cowardice, really, because like the consequences. I mean, Sky News, for example, British uh, Murdoch Channel has a, got a, quite a good correspondent who's in the West Bank at the moment, uh, Mark Stone. So uh, I'm not familiar with, I, I, no offence to him, but I'd never heard of him before. Uh, again, I don't pay much attention to mainstream media. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, people have been circulating clips of his reporting from Jerusalem. And it's good. Like he's, you know, he's just saying what he's seeing and he's sort of challenging the Israeli narrative when it contradicts what he's seeing. So he's doing his job. So of course he's getting viciously uh, slandered by um, pro-Israel yeah. activists online. But uh, yeah, hmm. it's part of the course. Greg, finally, I wanted, we only have a few minutes left. I wanted to um, ask you if you could kind of give some words of advice to people who still, you know, watch mainstream media, still read the New York Times. You know, I, I know that our our parents' generation are still, you know, kind of glued to the MSNBC, and you know, got to go watch Rachel now. Um, good, you know, good meaning, well-meaning people, but just. Yeah. Um, channeled, you know, through this lens of um, mainstream corporate uh, Israel bias. What what advice do you have for them about how to be skeptical and what what words or phrases to maybe look out for and dig more into? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, you know, the first thing I would honestly just urge someone to, to do is that, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to say pay zero attention to it because you can find lots of useful information by reading neutral reports, less so, so-called neutral reports, le much less so reading columnists. But um, what's necessary is to bring a uh, framework to that. Um, and that framework is, for Palestine, in my view, is the uh, colonial, settler colonial framework and the imperialism framework. Um, and so that is uh, the starting point that I would recommend is that, you know, recognize that there are um, longer term trajectories, right? And that, that coexists also with the fact that Palestine is not just, uh, is not an island, right? Like it's obviously, enmeshed in not only Middle Eastern, but, but global um, politics. Yeah. And so it's important to understand those two things as the jumping off point, colonialism and imperialism. Um, you know, I think that can enable people to sort of begin to piece together um, some, some of the information that is helpful uh, that you can sift through. I would look for information that comes from more credible institutions that are quoted than just like ambassadors, politicians, and so forth. Israeli sources. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, I mean, yeah. part of the problem is sourcing that you almost never see, right. um, you know, PCHR or Almazen or uh, Al Haq or any of the Palestinian uh, human rights groups quoted. Uh, no, despite the enormous international prestige that a lot of these groups have, but um, you know, even even like just 
UN sources are going to be a more useful part of what you get in, in those uh, articles that you might watch or if they happen to have someone from UNRWA or some other UN agency on TV. Um, you know, Doctors Without Borders, World Health, um, a World Food Program. If you, get, if you ever see comments from these types of groups, um, that's... Or, or, you know, Batsalem, Batsalem, or even Amnesty International, you know, this can, like, sift through the articles for that, for institutions that are imperfect in a lot of cases, but um, at least get us a lot closer to um, having some level of detail that isn't just um, he said, she said approach, which mm -hmm. is kind of what the both sides-ism is all about. Um, now, that's that's part of what I would say then if you're approaching consuming uh, mainstream news media. But I think beyond that, um, it's just good to <laughs> to not read mainstream news media and watch it or, or to supplement it at bare minimum. Um, I would urge people to read independent media. Um, not all of it's good, but Electronic Intifada and Mondo, Mondo Weiss and others um, in the English speaking world, but uh, those would be the two, two at the forefront um, that come to mind anyway. They are, uh, you're gonna get, you know, actual like professional journalists like yourselves working there, who people who talk to sources, who quote credible sources, um, who, you know, who, who uh, research, uh, their their work and refer to um, reliable institutions of the sorts that I was mentioning uh, moments ago, which include like on the ground uh, Palestinian sources that cannot just be easily dismissed despite Zionist and U.S. efforts to dismiss them as just like too biased to be believed or whatever. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, I think that like people should uh, really try to get past the idea that independent media is, uh, you know, amateurish and just pure ideology and um, recognize that, you know, professional mainstream journalism um, is, uh, is also ideological. Um, professional independent journalism, it no doubt has a viewpoint, um, but that viewpoint is grounded in actual evidence and you, you can see it, right? So we triple I, fact I, check. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I mean, like exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. When I first, and I, yeah, I know that going through your, yeah. your uh, <laughs> editing process, right? Yeah. Some places in the, actually independent or more mainstream media that I've written for are not very rigorous about it. And it's a great safety net as a writer to have that. Um, so yes, I can attest that certainly you have <laughs> fact-checking process, which is fantastic. So I mean, like it's 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 hard. I remember being, you know, an undergrad and not kind of uh, being where I'm at now politically, and thinking like, ooh, I don't know these. I they don't have the prestige of the New York Times or whatever, so I should stick to the credible ones that the guy in the suit on the subway reads or whatever. Um, that really, uh, I think, is not going to take people very far and that you can get every bit the same degree of seriousness and honesty um, that you can get, that you see in the best of professional journalism, which is rare, 
you see in independent media. So, I mean, I really just think, you know, take, take your time to read through it, look at the sources being quoted, follow the links. And if you determine that the independent media source you're looking at is credible, then it's much more worthwhile um, when it comes to Palestine and not only Palestine to pursue those who are doing the work without uh, being kind of lavished uh, with money from corporations that stand to gain from bloodshed, colonialism and imperialism um, from news media outlets that don't have ties to the government they're ostensibly criticizing. So, yeah. you know, I, I think that there's a lot of value to that. It doesn't mean that everything in independent media is good or flawless and that everything in mainstream media is, is crap. But, um, you know, I'd say to those <laughs> parents and people of our age group who are reading uh, independent mainstream media only, at minimum, supplement that and broaden your horizon. And if it's an issue you're interested in, try to read some longer form stuff, even a chapter of the book or uh, or a whole one if you get a chance. Yeah. Um, because journalism can only go so far as providing con context in terms of the, the longer arc of, of history. And on Palestine and really a lot of issues, that's crucially important to what's to understand what's happening right now. Yeah. We're going to leave it right there. Greg Schupak, uh, you teach media studies at the University of Guelph Humber in Toronto. Your book, The Wrong Story, Palestine, Israel, and the Media is out now. And we're going to link to your most recent article on FAIR. Israel-Palestine coverage presents false equivalency between occupied and occupier. Greg, thank you so much for all of your work and for being with us on the Electronic Intifada. Thank you. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit like, leave a comment. These engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on donate now. Thank you.